Hey everyone, David Kern here. Before we get to this week's episode, just wanted to let you know about two different things. One of them is I wanted to remind you that we have a Close Reads on the Road event coming up in Atlanta in August. We are very excited to be talking about Southern short stories and the themes of home and faith. It's going to be a great time. I'll be there. Sean will be there. Heidi will be there. Tim will be there. In fact, we're meeting at Tim's church. And on the Saturday, uh, the Friday night, rather, we are going to be going to watch our Shakespeare play and have a great meal together. That's part of the registration. If you want to learn more about this, head over to closereads.substack.com. There's still some space left. We would love to see you there. Now, I also want to let you know about the sponsor for this episode. It comes from the Cersei Institute's apprenticeship program. Children are souls to be nourished, not products to be measured. And children also become what they behold. As teachers, these truths impact lessons, students, and ourselves. Do you want to contemplate how these truths impact your teaching? And does participating with a small cohort who read, discuss, and teach together interest you? If so, please consider the Circe Institute Master Teacher Apprenticeship Program. They gather in person for a week in the summer and a half week in February, and the rest of the year, the conversations are over Zoom. To learn more, you can visit their website, which includes an option to attend a live office hour with one of their head mentors. Seats are limited, so if you would like to claim one, please contact Andrea Lipinski, the head of the program, at Andrea, that's A-N-D-R-E-A, at CerseInstitute.org, or you can visit CerseInstitute.org to apply. Again, that's CerseInstitute.org to apply, or if you'd like to claim a seat right now, you can go to, you can email Andrea at CerseInstitute.org. So thanks to the Cersei Apprenticeship Program for helping sponsor this episode and making this podcast possible this week. All right, with that, let's get you to our first conversation on The Scarlet Letter. Hey there, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are about to discuss Nathaniel Hawthorne's entry into the competition for the great American novel, The Scarlet Letter. And we are so excited to have Karen Swallow Pryor joining us again. We've made it an annual tradition, and my hope is that that continues on into the future. So Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. It's great to be back with you. Thank you. Has it been a year? Yes. I can't believe it's it. It's got to be about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So last year we were discussing Tess of the D'Urbervilles. This is a much shorter novel, although it is similar in some of its themes. And, <laughs> and it feels, feels longer at times. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's true. That's true. So this is a book that was first published in 1850 by Nathaniel Hawthorne, of course. And as I mentioned, and as you write about in your introduction to the uh, B&H editions that you, that you did, Karen, this is one of the books that is, you know, tossed around as potentially the great American novel. We can talk about that if you'd like. Uh, but I want to ask you first, Karen, you did, what, six editions for B&H, these really nice editions with your introductions and your uh, annotations and questions and all that. Why was this one of the six books that you wanted to choose? Of all the books that you could have chosen, this was one of the six that made the Karen Swallow prior Mount Rushmore, so to speak. Yeah, that's, no, I mean, this was the first five were pretty much, I already knew what I was going to do. Like those were the ones okay. I was going to do. Um, and all those other five are all 
British novels because mm. that's my specialty. And I, I wasn't, you know, I had several contenders for the final one that just wasn't really obvious to me. And uh, I thought I might do an American novel. I'm not an Americanist, so it's a stretch. I thought I might do Robinson Crusoe, uh, which would be another British novel. And I actually think, I think I asked in the, in the Close Reads um, podcast, uh, the Facebook group, I think I asked. Yeah. I ask, and I think a lot of people said um, the Scarlet Letter, and so that you know, so so I picked that. Um, it's you know, I I I don't love a lot of American literature. Um, I never, I didn't love the Scarlet Letter at first. Uh, I did teach it, I think, once, and uh, I enjoyed teaching it, and so that's part. You know, this whole series is kind of about teaching these novels to readers. So, um, so yeah, so there isn't any great reason, but I wanted to throw an American novel in there and it seemed like one people wanted. So I, I gave it a try. So Heidi, probably one of the reasons that, that this book was mentioned often in Karen's poll is that it is a book that is read often. Mm. It's one of the most read books in schools to still, you know, I can never keep it in stock at the bookstore because some ninth grader comes in looking for a copy, right? Um, they usually want used copies uh, that are that are a dollar that are full of other people's notes, I find. They they really want other people's notes when it comes to this book. I wonder so it, why. It turns what a out mystery. Karen Swallow Pryor just did an edition that has notes in it. So just get her edition. Absolutely. Um, Much better option. Because the other but, notes are probably from other ninth graders. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> and you can't necessarily trust that they were taking the notes of the teacher. So Heidi, this is a book that is read a lot. Mm. But it's also a book that you hear a lot of people saying, I read it in high school and boy, did I not like it or boy, did I not get it? And I'm going to need some help. So again, Karen comes to the rescue, right? But what was your experience with the Scarlet Letter in school, in life? So I've actually only ever read the Scarlet Letter in high school. Okay. I think I was a junior. It was in my honors English class, I think I remember. And we read this and then... A couple other, I think Arthur Miller's The Crucible and, you know, Hmm. just kind of like we did like a Puritan unit kind of thing. And then I also remember reading Emerson right after that and the connection between Hawthorne and the Transcendentalists and all that. But I, I don't remember the novel very well and I have long wanted to revisit it and just hadn't got around to it. So I'm really excited to read it as an adult because I have very dim recollections of it, which I, one of them is the name Dimsdale. So... (laughs) <laughs> there we go. I remember the names like vividly. I remember Pearl. I remember I remember Chillingworth. Hmm. I remember the naming. As with so many novels of the era, including yeah. Tess of the D'Urbervilles, the naming is uh, is important. It feels yeah. like mm-hmm. they're having a lot of fun making a point with some names. Uh, Karen, did you read this in high school too? I'm I'm pretty sure that I did. I don't. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sure I did. I I, I just remember. Uh, I remember reading it in college more. I think I wrote a okay. paper on it freshman yeah. year. So yeah, yeah. So, but you said that your uh, interest or your affection or your regard for this book had, had has increased. Is is it one of those things where you read it more, and so as you've read it, you've noticed that it is more complex than you thought on first glance? Well, it actually only. So I read it in college for sure. Wrote a paper on it, and then I ended up teaching it the one year that I taught at a Christian high school. Um, Mm. So I taught, yeah, I was a, I don't know. Yeah. I was a high school English teacher for one year 
and then I became the principal, so I didn't get to teach again. But, um, <laughs> but it <laughs> was, it you know, yes, yeah. it was, you know, it was like in the uh, Becca curriculum, and oh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it, it's covered pretty thoroughly, and I and I. And, but I hadn't read it since then. And so, again, I, so I was actually revisiting it when I decided to do it for the series. And it really was a very different experience reading it, you know, even then after all those years. So, hmm. yeah, yeah, it's, you know, it's, yeah. I can't wait to hear how Heidi responds to reading it for the first time as an adult. Yeah, I'm so excited. Well, so so how, how has it changed? I mean, we've, we've read the long Customs House introductory chapter which we'll need to discuss because we got some questions about it but then the first three chapters so thus far what's your experience been Heidi well so far I think it's great I mean the custom house that's nobody's favorite thing to read I think I think Karen addressed that directly and very wisely and circumspectly and everything in your introduction uh you did a great job with that it does serve a really important purpose you can tell within the novel um but of course, I liked reading the first three chapters a little bit better. So I love Nathaniel Hawthorne, though. I really think Young Goodman Brown is one of my it, like it's one of the best short stories ever written by a human being on Earth, and I just love <laughs> him. So, well, okay. So Karen Heidi Heidi makes a statement like that, and I was literally just going to ask you, how do you think Hawthorne holds up compared to some of these other writers that you've worked on the you know conrad and hardy and austin so you know some of these like the the legends Mm. do you think he's on par i mean i I, yeah i mean you mentioned all british writers so that's like really um you know stacking the deck against him but um (laughs) (laughs) which is one of the things he's trying to conquer (laughs) and of course he is the first he's trying to help form this Amer- this this right, American right. literary tradition. Right. And he's definitely, uh, yeah, he is, part, part of what's difficult about The Scarlet Letter, and I mentioned this in the introduction, is that it is published in 1850, which isn't, you know, that long ago in terms of great literature. But yeah. he's, he's writing it in the, you know, kind of trying to echo the language of 200 years before. So it really does read like even older language. Hmm. Um, and so it gives it that it gave, gives it a much older feel than a feel. And of course the subject matter is as well, but um, you know, putting aside, aside well uh, yeah, he, he's, he's a good writer. I'll just, I'll just, I mean, it's just not romance. Isn't my favorite American literature. Isn't my favorite. <laughs> um, the custom house is, you know, is a drag, but the story itself is, is, is really pretty good. I, well, what, I really like it. <laughs> what do you think are his strengths and his weaknesses? Mm. I think it's fair to 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 discuss that. Yeah. Well, um, I, I mean, I think his his strengths are the way. I mean, obviously, his work is heavily symbolic, but mm. I still think he's very deft with symbols. Um, like he's not. There are a lot of symbols. The symbols are meaningful, and yet he isn't heavy-handed, which which seems contradictory because they're they're so you know they're so prevalent and so meaningful. But he he you know he surrounds so many of them with sort of this ambiguous language. He I mentioned this like he 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 hints and says it may be or this it might be that. Um, he's really asking us to interpret the, the story, which I mean, Young Goodman Brown is a great comparison because he's really doing this the same thing in in that short story, just um, asking and inviting us to interpret, which um, which is not 
you know, you don't see that as much in the writers that you mentioned before. They're writing um, in a more realist vein. Um, and of course, there is interpretation, but they're not like so obviously asking us to do that work of interpretation. One thing that you mentioned that he's trying to use the language of an era 150 years almost 200 years before when he's writing. So he's writing a historical novel. So was there a tradition up to that point of the historical of historical fiction in the way that we think of it now, or even the way that he was, the mode that he was writing in? You know, you look at like Austin, Austin's not writing historical fiction, of course. Mm-hmm. So as the novel's evolving, what role did historical fiction play up to that, up to his point? Or is he playing a part in inventing that genre, which now is like incredibly popular. Yeah, that's a really good question that I haven't looked into. I can't I can't really think of many other novels from the 19th century. Maybe Sir Walter Scott um, was doing mm. that. Yeah, um, and- yeah, yeah. But as the novel was developing, I mean, it was still relatively new. So this is still even writing a historical novel is still a relatively new option. Um, so uh, it definitely was sort of a counterpoint to those who are writing in the moment and trying to write more realistic work. So, but it shows the history of the, you know, one strain in the history of the novel is the romance. So novels were just kind of combining that older tradition of romance, which is always rooted in history with a more mm. realistic approach to narration and, um, and plot. Hmm. Heidi, what do you think are his weaknesses? Uh, he is a little bit too... That's a good question. One I'm not prepared for, but I thankfully, I have a couple of ideas on this. Um, I think Karen can correct yeah, you if you're yeah. wrong. Um, I think he <laughs> is a little bit too on the nose with his agenda as he writes, which is maybe a general... I don't want to say failing, but it's it's a general characteristic of his age. Uh, he's a very very moralist writer, uh, and one, but one of the things that he's attacking is Puritan moralism, which is really interesting. And so I don't mind it because it creates kind of this unique, contradictory, like psychologically tense type of writing in which he's saying live a very do all of these moral things, but not like these guys, you know, and that's interesting. Like, so it doesn't really bother me, but I do think he's a little bit on the nose. And maybe mm-hmm. that's why he's so widely read in high school, because a lot of people use the Scarlet Letter in order to teach high schoolers how to read at a more sophisticated literary level. And so that on the nose part of his writing is is easily digestible by, you know, young minds who are coming into more sophisticated kinds of reading. But it does feel a little, I I think it does feel a little bit heavy handed. Although to your point, um, I think his symbolism is complex enough that it's, even though it's so on the nose, there is still a, a, a masterful literary touch to it. For example, the, um, in the custom house, the, Mm, the eagle that's over the door, right? And the eagle is both kind of this sheltering image as well as a very attacking image. And it's once you have an eye for symbolism, you're like, oh, that's got to be symbolic. But it has it has an, enough complexity to it that it it is interesting. <laughs> I also think that he is um, 
just hard to wade through. Like it takes about 30 pages, I think, to get uh, a, to, to be able to just read fluidly. In like the rhythm? Hawthorne. Yeah. It's that, and I think that's different in his short stories. Like, I don't think the birthmark is like that. I don't think the young Goodman Brown is like that. It's just his novels. Um, and, and so that makes me feel like he's like working a little bit too hard and isn't writing super fluently right at first, but that's just speculation on my part, but it is, it's hard to get into. So Karen, you're nodding. So you agree with that? Yeah, I really do. And, and you meant, yeah, I, I thinking about it now, I think his, uh, his he's really his art is the short story and his it's almost like Flannery O'Connor. Right? I, was, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I was just gonna say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah that uh, that the, the short stories are better. They you know that that intensity works better for a short story. Yeah. Um, than it does a novel. It's a little bit much. Yeah. And I I like what you said about him being on the nose and and one sort of resentment I have um, about you know, some of my earlier education is I, I just recall, you know, I think I think Hawthorne, along with some of these other writers from the time, tend to be taught, again, my, my experience is public school, so maybe others have different experience, but they're taught as sort of like an anti-Puritan agenda. And so when I was returning to this novel to, to teach it earlier and to do this, it's not as anti, you know, you, you, you talked about this idea, it's not as anti-Puritan as you would think, I mean, it really is more complicated and more nuanced, and um, and so I, that's something that I actually appreciate about it because I just in somewhere in my mind early on I got oh these guys are writing against against the Puritans well yes but they're not writing against all religion or all morality right. like you said that you know like you said not this but this right mm-hmm. do yeah, you think he's oh go ahead David no Sorry. no no go ahead go ahead go ahead say and what one thing I. I was noticing even to your point, Karen, one thing I was noticing as I was reading is that he, he writes this romance genre, which is different from the time. Like it's not as realistic as, as, you know, Thomas Hardy, whatever. There's almost like a Edgar Allan Poe feeling to it. There's almost this like Gothic flair, like flavor to what he's writing. Uh, But he's also such a moralist that it creates this really interesting, um, style I think to his writing and he seems to reach really condemn even in these first couple of chapters uh what he seems to see as this like utilitarian aspect to puritanism right that um there's even a direct dig about how the society is so functional that it fails to imagine anything right it fails to be beautiful and he has this like longing for for beauty that I has it, he seems to be just kind of trying to find his way in a more practical practical and pragmatic American landscape and a society that's attempting to establish itself as being um as working properly um and but he doesn't want to go back to the old world so it's just interesting the marble fawn is one of I really like that one and that I'm kind of bringing the mindset that he has in the Marble Fawn backwards into reading the Scarlet Letter, which was an earlier work, um, and finding it an interesting comparison on that religious and societal level. And so in his using the Puritans isn't necessarily, to your point, isn't necessarily to say just purely an attack on Puritanism, but 
what Puritan represents, Puritanism represents in the establishment of an American culture seems to be one of the things that he's examining and indicting and looking at and wondering about. Um, and we, in, with some hindsight, not that much, only a couple hundred years, uh, we're not right in the middle of it the same way that he was. Hmm. How do you, have you started that book by Jonathan Healy yet on the 17th century in England? I mentioned this on a recent episode. Actually, I got it right here. The Karen. Blazing World. Best title the blazing, ever. The Blazing World. A New History of Revolutionary England, 1603 to 1689. And it came out last year, I think. But it is about, well, it's the English Civil War and Cromwell. And it starts with King James and ends with Charles II back on the throne and all that kind of stuff. Got some great artwork on the back of people getting uh, tortured and stuff. Uh <laughs> But basically, one of the big things that it's covering is the role of the Puritans in the in the in the evolution of the English monarchy, English culture, uh, and thus the future of modernity and European history in general. Right? The Civil War doesn't happen without the Puritans, which means that you don't have the constitutional monarchy in the way we it became in the 17th and 18th century, and then you don't have, you know, American history is also being shaped at the same time by the Puritans. So I think in a way, maybe we underrate the role that Puritanism as a movement, as a political movement, even played in the world that we live in right now. Mm -hmm. So do you think then that Hawthorne, this is for either of you, is trying to, he's obviously not trying to create an apologetic for Puritanism, but do you think then that he is trying to examine it, or so to speak, or is he trying to actually condemn it? Like is this is this book meant to be purely critical of Puritanism, or is it meant to be? Is it more more complex? Well, you you mentioned in your intro, uh, Karen, that he's responding to generations of controversial family activities, <laughs> and how that kind of is weighing that his family history is weighing on him as he's as he's living and writing. Yeah, I think I think that is that point can't be overstated because there is this, um, you know, it's just like everyone does to some degree or another kind of distinguish themselves from their parents, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's your home or your, your family home, your family religion, your geography, it doesn't mean, you know, everyone doesn't come to completely accept or completely reject it, but we all kind of go through that process of, of, of figuring out, how we're the same and how we're different. And um, yeah, Hawthorne yeah. had a lot of sort of family baggage to unpack. And so I think there is a personal element of it to him, t- for him. But that that's also what makes the novel so powerful is because that was true of America too, his own family history, mm. which is tied to the, to the Puritans and to their gifts and their excesses. Um, it is that that's America has the same tie. So, so I think it's him as a, Honestly, like being intellectually and emotionally honest in um, reckoning with the, you know, the the demons of the past, but also recognizing that you can't entirely shake them either. You can't just, you know, become an X whatever. Um, you just have to you you have to reckon with them, and and that's why he doesn't he doesn't necessarily denounce or reject everything. He's just looking at it. I think. Um, yeah. Do you think the custom house thing then 
is you know for those for those who who don't you know god forbid have your edition and didn't get a chance yet to read your introduction i'm sure they'll be getting it later it's it's fine can you explain a little bit about what you think he's doing there and why it matters like why why not skip it you guys are both saying it's kind of boring, right? It's kind of hard to get through. Why not just go to chapter one? Um, and because you do say in your intro, I, th- I think you use the phrase that it is a work of art, despite it sometimes being a slog. Um, so wh- what's going do I, on? Do I say that? No, 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 no. Um, yeah, maybe, let maybe me. I misread it. <laughs> no, and uh, let me. Yeah. So when I was getting ready for uh, the podcast today, and and you know we had talked about how to break up the chapters, and I think we went with the with the schedule I proposed. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because there are a lot of pages to today's reading, but I was kind of thinking like chapters one, two, and three are short, and they they kind of go together, and they're not that long. Yeah. You know, but our people, you know, are they really going to read the custom house with care and attention or are they just going to skim through it? And then because yeah. so, the total pages for today is, is a lot, um, but most of it is the custom, the custom house. house. So yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was, I was spending more time rereading that for today um, and saw some things in it. I didn't before. And also felt the slog again. <laughs> um, and you know, it, it is, but but what I was noticing and appreciating, what, I mean, what I say, what I say in the introduction for those who don't have it or didn't read it is that the, the, this the custom house slog as it is does a few things. Um, it is connected thematically to what follows because you know by the time you get somewhere toward the end of it, we get the sort of the provenance of the Scarlet Letter, the fictional provenance with with the with the fictional narrator who's a lot like Nathaniel Hawthorne um, coming across this um, this this wrapped up in paper red letter a and wrapped in the story the sort of the slim outline of of the story that he's about to tell and so you know in terms of plot and in in terms of the story and the story within the story that's important but even then it takes us a long time to get to that point Mm -hmm. um and so what's happening really before that is we are getting some of that history that uh of Nathaniel Hawthorne's life and his family. He and again, I think I would draw a comparison to kind of what Virginia Woolf does in that sort of what she that genre she calls um, fictional autobiography. I mean, it's autobiography, but it's you know it's 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 in the service of fiction um, and part of the of the tale. So he's developing the persona that's going to tell this story. Um, and as I say in the introduction, that persona turns out to be kind of like Hester Prynne in the sense of being someone who's not understood by society, who's apart, held apart, a little bit above, um, has, is more sensitive and um, spiritual than those around him. And so there's a lot of that going on. Um, and it is, you know, it is difficult to get through. But even reading it, I mean, I guess I did this edition probably you know, when by the time I was done writing, it was two years ago. And even in rereading this in that passage of time, and Heidi did touch upon this already, one of the things I really was noticing is how much this narrator sounds like um, Generation Z. Now, don't anyone get insulted or upset because I'm not about to slam you. I'm about to compliment you. Um, you know, one of the things that the pandemic and the younger generations uh, have have taught us or shown us or shaping us is is uh, is some of this rejection of just like 
you know, the, the nine to five work day, work that has no meaning or purpose. Like, you know, is this what we want to devote our lives to? Because for generations, that's what people did. They just devoted their lives to work and to whether that was meaningless or not. And this narrator is just kind of saying, wow, you know, it's just me being, in, you know, in this material financial world of the custom house counting money all day. He's feeling like his soul is kind of starved um, hmm. for beauty and meaning and purpose. Now, he kind of goes on and on about that, which, you know, I guess, you know, we some of us tend to do. Um, but I was seeing in him for the first time kind of echoes of of these questions that a new generation is beginning to ask about um, the world of work and, and just the, the soul-crushing nature of, of so much of, of what we're, we have to do in the modern world. And so maybe reading it in that light um, as someone who who is an artist or wants to be an artist and um, is kind of feels like he's losing his soul in this kind of, of, of daily grind in this material world. Um, and then he comes across this, you know, this little secret treasure hidden away and it just lights his, his imagination on fire and he spends time ruminating and, and imagining how to fill in the blanks. And that's the story that follows. Um, so I just, I came away with rereading this again, re-re-rereading it um, for today with a different appreciation for it even though it really is it could be a lot shorter <laughs> so do you think that the length is just is it is it just a flaw like he didn't realize that it was too long or is he doing it on purpose I mean, I, I, I think that he, I, I think that this is another. This is just something that's different in our ages. I don't. I don't. I think mm. his contemporary, he and his contemporary audience would not see it as as long. Yeah, they didn't have anything else do. to do. They, yeah, were getting, no, they but, weren't. They were not getting yeah, on Instagram. No, exactly. Right. I mean. I mean. I probably. You know. Candle I, I, was going to burn out, but you yeah. Know. I mean, how, some of these Twitter threads are really, really long, and that's a great point. Are, like, yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. <laughs> Why is that so long? So yeah, um, when it, it used to be 140 characters, but then, you know, <laughs> it's just a guideline now. <laughs> so, so okay, um, one of the things that you do mention in the intro is that he married into a sort of transcendentalist family, and all of that swirling around the Emerson Thoreau stuff is swirling around his part of the world during his time in that part of the world um do you think to what extent is that informing his his contemplation of this lifestyle that he's talking about you know counting money in the customs house as well as his criticism of puritanism like how much should we how much time should we spend looking for transcendentalist mm -hmm. ideas mm -hmm. as we're going through this book is another way of asking the question. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm not a scholar of Hawthorne or American literature, so I'm probably kind of the wrong person to ask, even if, if, if they're in there, let alone look for them in some way. But just based on my, you know, my research and reading for this, I just want to say Hawthorne's kind of an old-fashioned guy. You know, he's an old-fashioned guy working in the you know, the world of money and finance. Um, he he's, he's romantic in you know, in all the senses of the word. He's surrounded by people who are more philosophical and schooled in romanticism or transcendentalism than he is. And so he's drinking that water. Mm -hmm. But I just I just think he's a, you know, a talented writer who's, I mean, who whose ideas and way of thinking actually predates transcendentalism in a way. Mm -hmm. um, so. Okay, we can keep talking about all this as we go. Let's talk a little bit about 
these first three chapters. I feel we need to do that before we go for the before we go for this week. One of the questions that I have have been thinking about is the degree to which the book asks us to judge and or sympathize Hester, sympathize with Hester. Um, early on in the book, how do you think? Like, what clues in the text in terms of the way he writes about her? Do you think? Tell us how to feel uh, towards her. Heidi, what do you think about this? I think that we are supposed to feel sympathetic with Hester Prynne from the very beginning. Uh, Her helplessness, her beauty. If this is a romance, she is a princess in distress, right? She is a damsel who needs to be rescued. And the, the... Princes, so to speak, are the monsters and not the rescuers, right? And so we have a beautiful, helpless woman in need of intervention, and there is nobody fighting for her, not even the other women. In fact, they are the very first ones who condemn her. Um, and she she's set apart from the very beginning, which makes her a romantic figure, both little R and capital R, right? This whole... You just mentioned, Karen, that Hawthorne is a romantic. Yes, like he's a romantic novelist, um, although he's a little bit more complex than, you know, quote unquote, just a romantic novelist. But there's there's this idea of that there are people on the earth who are set apart, who are different from others just by nature inherently, and that they're going to be persecuted because of that. And, and, and that they have some, they live or dwell in some kind of higher spiritual plane. They have eyes that can see things that the rabble cannot, right. And, uh, and, and Hester is all of those things as well as being very appealing because she's helpless and young and um and in a rigid society that is condemning her uh for for love right another romantic capital r and little r ideal so then karen do you do you well first of all do you agree with that and do you think that that the idea is are we being given a protagonist and then the the morality espoused by the church for which she's being for which she broke and thus that with the code for which she broke and then she's being punished for it. Is that the opposition here? Is it saying what she did is okay and thus she's being unjustly persecuted? Or is it saying, no, she did something wrong. Like this moral order still matters, but the way it's being, the way she's being uh, punished for is still Mm -hmm. a persecution and no person just Mm -hmm. should still be treated the way she's being treated. Well, I mean, again, and I don't remember how much we try to avoid spoilers. I don't, you know, the story's so... It's a pretty red book. Okay, okay, okay. So, so. Uh, yeah, so, and clearly, she, we know what the Scarlet Letter stands for. She she is an adulteress. Right. Uh, but just sort of, you know, trying to read it the way, more like the way Hawthorne would want us to encounter mm-hmm. it for the first time. The first, you know, the first chapter, it opens up, you know, with... I mean, I, I love his, t- his titles are very clear and but they're pointing us to the right things of the prison door right and so mm-hmm. a prison has so many symbolic meanings and a prison door has so many symbolic mm-hmm. meanings i mean they aren't they aren't uh, mysterious and then we get the you know this famous picture of the of the rose bush by the prison door and and i mean he describes the rose bush 
which is a literal gross bush. But also when he says in closing the, that first chapter, he says, um, talking about the rosebush, finding it so directly on the threshold of our narrative, which is now about to issue from that inauspicious portal, we could hardly do otherwise than pluck one of its flowers and present it to the reader. Like now who's being, you know, it is Hester Prynne who is going to be plucked um, and, and presented to the reader. It may serve, let us hope, to symbolize some sweet moral blossom that may be found along the track or relieve the darkening close of a tale of human frailty and sorrow. I mean, clearly this passage or the symbol is, 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 is telling us it's about Hester as well. So even the, so we know she's guilty of something. We know she's, well, we know she's guilty of the thing that makes her wear the scarlet letter. Um, and yet he's already telling us that she is a sweet, moral blossom. There's something inside her, something spiritual. Again, this is, part of romanticism um, that belies her sort of external fleshly state and, and the judgment that has um, been bestowed on her. So um, and now I don't remember what your question was, but, you know, Hawthorne is clearly telling us how to think about Hester, even if, if these details haven't been fleshed out yet. Do you think that... Right. No, go ahead. I also find it so significant that the rose bush is mentioned in connection with Anne Hutchinson, a uh, as you say in your notes here, a reformer, a female reformer who stood against the flawed uh, and the flawed patriarchy, and in the the very next sentence brings in the rose bush that sprung up under the sainted feet of Anne Hutchinson, uh, which is a very um, we have a vision of then a opposing Christian ideal, right? Because the Puritans would never have thought of roses and sainted footsteps. Those are Catholic ideas, right? And so we're presented with a martyred woman who's praised using Catholic ideas. Uh, kind of images here and words um, in opposition to the male-dominated, um, more rigid Puritan Protestant idea um, and ethic. And, and then we get the roses, which, is, which are images connected with the Virgin Mary, who's directly alluded to uh, in the chapters that we read as well. So he is yeah. a complex writer. There's a lot of subtlety in his writing, in spite of the fact that earlier I said he's on the nose, that there's, there's, there's a lot going on for those with eyes you know, to see and pay attention to. I like that you brought up the Hutchinson came up because... She doesn't belong in either place. Like she doesn't right. belong in America with the, the Puritans, but she also doesn't. He said she went off to Rhode Island to hang out with uh, um, Williams, Roger Williams, right? Yeah. Who they didn't want in England after during during and after the Civil War. But they also he couldn't fit in in Massachusetts either. So he's like, ah, I'll just go to Rhode Island and start my own thing. So she ends up there. She doesn't belong in either the New World or the Old World. And that much, and you know, I think Hester fits into that same, that same sort of role. Go ahead. No, no, I and I, I love how you describe that and that connection that you made, Dave, that David. Just, just this one short chapter is so full of of stuff because even as I was reading the last part of it, which talks about that sweet, that rose, I mean, the opening is is a direct contrast of the throng of bearded men and sad colored garments and gray steeple crowned hats 
intermixed with women, some wearing hoods and others bareheaded. Just the imagery of these grim, mean, bearded men and sad colored garments and the women that go a with them. It's such a, a throng. Yeah, it's such a contrast to the to the closing of that chapter. And this is part of what he does throughout is these contrasts between, you know, between these binary categories of of, of of sweetness and light versus grayness. Um but then but then these figures that it's not just that. It's not just but it's the ones who don't fit in, who can't fit into either category, like Hester herself, right? She's an adulteress. She's in prison. Um, but she's also associated with this with this rose in contrast to the wrong of bearded men. So Which takes us back to your comments earlier, Karen, about the custom house. That what what I think is really interesting about that, even though it is long, and if I had edited it, I might have suggested a strong edit. But the it, Another thing that it offers us is Hawthorne's attempt to um, to universalize this struggle. Right, that that this is not just about the Puritans. In fact, the Puritan culture is, in a way, a symbol of something bigger than that he's addressing the problem of overbearing political authority on Earth. Right, and he's and the the Puritans themselves. Uh, so, for all you know, for whoever listeners that are like. I love Jonathan Edward, love the period, right? Like that, that to the conversation we had earlier, it isn't that Hawthorne is trying to, um, he's not merely uh, or even primarily trying to condemn the Puritans as much as he is utilizing them and an American person and a perception of them and perhaps even a legacy and, and some, maybe some kernels of truth. But remember, this is a story, right? It's a literary tale. It's almost like a fable. You, it, it, it reads, as you said in the introduction, like a long tale, right? Um, and, and in that sense, then with the, with the narrator who also stands alone and can't find himself in any place and is trying to figure out who he is, and whether or not he and he remember in that in in the custom house he can't write the story until after he gets fired by a corrupt government right um and and then he's able to come into himself as an artist and contribute something to american letters uh, and so uh, with that, we have this idea of these figures who are set apart, that stand alone, who have something to offer, but are being persecuted by a surrounding majority. Uh, and um and and then that makes it a universal struggle, not merely a Puritan struggle. Um, so I, I think that that's really important that Hawthorne is trying to write, as you said, David, earlier, an American novel uh, and establish an American humane letters tradition and put himself into it. Um, but he continues to try to make it more universal than just this one subculture. I think that's true. But I do think that he as an artist is respond his heritage within the puritan yeah. world is complicated not just because of the salem witch trials or the role that his his great great grandfathers played mm. as magistrates or judges but also because within puritanism in the 16th century was an anti like artist anti um well imaginative. like they were imaginative yeah. world like they they were they were literally trying to shut down artists in England you know they weren't just against the king they, they were also telling make there's like about how people dressed the kind of art they put in their homes the kind of things that you the way you wore your hair all of those sorts of things were part of what they were pursuing and so 
And so that I think probably is in his psyche as he's trying to just just decide what it means to be an artist, to have grown up in a world that is anti imagine imaginative work and then trying to work in the romantic tradition seems like it would be a little bit disorienting. <laughs> and I think that's part of what sh- shapes 19th century American literature in general. I mean, even I think Twain is responding to that later on. He's responding to the clash of American Puritanism and American Romanticism at the same time. And it, and like he's probably the first person to come out of that with something beginning to emerge as its own thing. That's a different conversation for a different day. But um, right, is there a place in um, with the American Protestant ethic and ethos for literature? Right, is there a place for those who who want to contribute something to American letters? Who Thoreau feels like he has to go away. To talk right, about religion. Right, like yeah. that's it's a complicated landscape to do that, and Hawthorne addresses that directly in his work. So on that note, there was a passage from the Custom House I wanted to read, which actually just addresses both of what you said so well. And it just really jumped out at me when I was rereading this. Uh, and this, this is where it's universal and where it's also, I mean, where Hawthorne is so different from the stereotypical like romantic artist and like Thoreau, right, having to go away. So this is in my edition is on page 75. Uh, and this is just so powerful, I think, Um and it's about a quarter of the way down. Again, this is our narrator who's working in this job in the custom house and wants to be an artist and a writer and is struggling with this with the tension. It was a folly with the materiality of this daily life pressing so intrusively upon me to attempt to fling myself back into another age or to insist on creating the semblance of a world out of airy matter, when at every moment the impalpable beauty of my soap bubble was broken by the rude contact of some actual circumstance. (laughs) The wiser effort would have been to diffuse thought and imagination through the opaque substance of today, and thus to make it a bright transparency, to spiritualize the burden that began to weigh so heavily, to seek resolutely the true and indestructible value that lay hidden in the petty and wearisome incidents and ordinary characters with which I was now Mm. conversant. The fault was mine. The page of life that was spread out before me seemed dull and commonplace only because I had not fathomed its deeper import. A better book than I shall ever write was there, leaf after leaf presenting itself to me, just as it was written out by the reality of the flitting hour and, and vanishing as fast as it as was written. Um, I mean, this is he's just saying the magic and the the beauty and the imagine of 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 all the things I could imagine and all the beauty that I'm not. It's right here. I just have to look beneath the surface of sort of the material mundane world and not feel sorry for myself because I'm here. I just, I have to peel back the layers and see it. And that's what we all have to do. Mm. So I find like an indictment there of me. (laughs) So then where does Hester fit into this equation? Because one of the things that I was just in England. And so we went to Windsor Castle, which was fascinating Mm. because, um, well, I'm also reading this book about, the 17th century English history and Charles I lives in Windsor Castle 
and he is amassing. He's coming right on the heels of King James the first, right? Who translates, he's this big project of translating the King James Bible. Charles the first comes in and he masses all this art. He's very interested in the arts and he's a patron for the arts. And he's working with all these great portrait painters and all these great, he, he gets Bruegels and, you know, just an incredible collection of art. Puritans under Cromwell come through. They get rid of Charles the first, cut his head off basically. And uh, when they do that, they take all the art that's in Windsor castle and they sell it off or get rid of it or burn some of it. When Charles the first comes back in, his project is to go find all that art. So he goes back and finds tons and tons of artwork, including this uh, um, Van Dyke portrait of his father, which is still there today. And so the castle now, in the part that you can go see, has all this artwork that Charles II recovered from the Puritans and the other people the Puritans were fighting with against the Royalists. And he restores that and basically says, this is England. This is the monarchy. And then in this section, Hester is specifically linked to Queen Elizabeth. And so I'm wondering, like, where is she meant to fall? I guess the just goes back to the question, where is she in this equation? Is she meant to... Let me just... Let me just I don't want to say anything else. Where does she fit into the equation of what we're discussing here, do you think? Heidi, you want to go first? <laughs> Um, I think that it ha does have something to do with the romantic ideal, right? That she is this set apart kind of creature uh, with a capacity for appreciating, loving, and manifesting beauty that that is dangerous to the society in which she dwells. They don't have room for her, uh, for her physical beauty, as well as her internal capacity uh, and, and, and instead of embracing her and loving her for it, they reject and condemn her for it. They see her as an object of temptation, uh, rather than an agent of potential, I don't even want to say change because for obvious reasons, they wouldn't want change. Right. Uh, but in that sense, she is the, the romantic ideal, both as um, an object. And when I say an object of beauty, I, I really just mean not a subject. I really, don't, I don't mean that in a, in a negative sense. Um, she is beautiful and that is threatening to them. Um, and she has a capacity for it in her soul. And we already see that in these first three chapters. Uh, I also think that the to your point, she's also directly linked with the Virgin Mary, another mm -hmm. well, the Virgin Queen, yes, Elizabeth, exactly. Maybe not so, but anyway, right? Yeah, and and so I think that she's linked to these powerful women. Um, obviously, uh, this. There, there is a feminist critique. There is a statement about womanhood and the power of feminine beauty and the uh, and the threat that is to masculine authority. Um, and 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 I don't just mean beauty of body. I also mean that in in terms of the beauty of the soul and what that the power that that manifests in the world. And so I, I think that that's another way that's linked to the questions that you're that you're bringing up. Um, so, Karen, what else would you add to that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think this this is a lot of what Hawthorne is doing mm-hmm. throughout this novel. It is again, it's not just about it. It's 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 American America's ties to England and its attempt to break from England. And it's not just Hester who is connected to Queen Elizabeth. Uh, on in in chapter two, when he's talking about the women, you know, the judgmental women who are standing out there waiting to to judge her as she comes out the door, um, it says the women who were now standing about the prison door stood within less yeah. than half a century of the period when the man like Elizabeth had been the not altogether unsuitable representative of the sex. They were her country women. And it talks about how they're, you know, stocky with with beef and ale, just like <laughs> she was. And so so, yeah. I, you know, I think there's it's I think England represents more and, and Queen Elizabeth specifically is more about um, this new nation's attempt to sever itself from its past and yet not being able to. Um, I think hmm. that seems like a heavier connection to me than um, than Hester, who's just she's just she's linked to so many. I mean, she's just one of those symbols that, you know, is inexhaustible. So, OK, so then given that, I think we need to before we go. I need to ask this question because I, I can I can feel it in the air among mm-hmm. our listeners. We have a character who is linked to the Virgin Mary, to a Virgin Queen, to all kinds of virtues, who nonetheless has committed adultery. So is the book then too lenient on that the sin of adultery itself? Is it excusing her? How does it want us to think about the choices that she has made? Um, and maybe we could, maybe you can answer this by way of saying how you think we ought to think about this as we're moving forward in the book, because it is going to address it further. You don't have to give your whole answer on this question today. We will return to it. But how how do you respond to that, uh, Karen? Well, I would refer everyone back to Tess of the Durbervilles, <laughs> which we talked about last year. I mean, yeah. there, there is a tradition, you know, in life and literature of understanding that women who are not virgins can still retain um, some kind of innocence. And, you know, there's so much depends on, on the rest of the story, which, which does unfold. But um, I would, I would see a pretty good connection um, between these two characters in the way that their, their writers are portraying them. You all even, and then you also in that book have the, the two men. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Who are, yeah. Who are not. Yeah. Who are not. Yeah. Yeah. Not yeah. What they seem. Yeah. First, Heidi, what do you think? Yeah, I think that I think Karen's right. I think that that's going to become one of the more complex uh, contemplations of the book. And in any book that is, as I said, Hawthorne is a moralist. He has a very strong moral center in everything that he writes. It's do- it doesn't take. Uh, th- this is not like some postmodern book that's like like hooray woman's sexuality that's not what we're going to get in this book it's much more complicated than that there is an an assumption within the book that adultery is a sin that is inexcusable uh, not only to god but to human society um and uh however the the book is going to ask the question what do we do with the rest of the human life if that is the one main sin right like what what is it possible to maintain uh, 
Is it possible to manifest and maintain other virtues if that one virtue is lost, right? Um, and that's a worthwhile question for anybody to ask um, in our age as well as theirs. I think because our age is so permissive with with a woman's sexual virtue, we tend, sometimes we Christians tend to come at a book with, you know, guns blazing already expecting permissive sexual permissiveness in novels um, and ready to condemn it when we encounter it. Yeah. Uh, like encouraging it, not yeah, let alone. Because we desire, yeah. because we have a true and proper longing for books that uphold and teach virtue in, in a world that seems to have lost its way. And, and that's a right thing to question. I think one of the things that novels like this do is remind us that there have been other ages, ages in in time in which that uh, in in which that particular part of a woman's virtue was so overly condemned and controlled uh, that nobody could see past it if there was a fall. And that's the question that Hawthorne is asking, and it's a worthwhile one for his age and for ours. Well, uh, do, do we want to, should we just stop there? <laughs> um, there's so much to talk about that I'm hesitant to bring up another topic of conversation or, or, or add on to that because we're running out of time. Um, let, let me just ask this. Given all these things that we've been talking about here, what do you think people should look for as they go into this next section? And we're going to be discussing uh, chapters four through nine, I believe, um, next. So, um, Karen, you want to go first on that? What should people be looking for? What would you uh, suggest people keep an eye out for? I, I think I think our discussion today has led naturally to um, to just pointing out that people should look for the way that Hawthorne um, prepares us to not be able to walk away with an easy interpretation or easy categorization. I mean, he's not just, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's inviting us to ask these questions uh, in the way he presents characters and the situations and the way he reveals things. So um, that's what I would say to look for is how he prepares us to ask these complicated questions. Hmm. I said four through nine, it's four through eight next week. is what we'll read. Heidi, what about you? I think the same. I, I, what I like so, what I like so much about Hawthorne is that he, he uses something like the Scarlet A is a great example of this. I said on the nose and that is, it's pretty on the nose. Like there's an A, it represents her adultery. She has to wear it and it shames her. But at the same time, she adorns it beautifully, right? She, she turns it into a work of art um, and she refuses to name the man. And so that Scarlet A is on the nose and yet incredibly nuanced and complex at the same time, which is, again, I think I said this before, one of the reasons why I think we have a lot of high schoolers read it, because it's like right there, like it's, you know, there's the Scarlet A, that is the American symbolism at its finest, right? Um, and a symbol is something that exists in the concrete world that represents something else, right? And and carries with it a weight of meaning. Uh and and so I think look for look for things that feel obvious, but if you go under the surface, as Karen said, 
there's nuance, there's complexity, there's paradox, there's there's apparent contradiction inviting us to either attempt to resolve it or to just let it be a mystery. And and that is, I think, what Hawthorne is great at. Um, and and so it's you can read it and be like, oh, I get that, the Scarlet A. But if your mind works on it a little bit and you find yourself thinking about it when you're away from the book, like that's a that I I think that's what we're kind of looking for as we wow, as we left. experience. Yeah, as we experience this novel. There's a lot of that. He's also pretty good at like making the foreshadowing on the on the nose, but also symbolic. Like there's the moment when Dimsdale is giving his uh He's told, you stirring know, you gotta his, gives his stirring speech, and everyone's like, "Oh, obviously, whoever it is is going to stand up now." And it says that the baby, that Pearl, even responds and like reaches up to him, and so he, you know, it previews all these foreshadows, all these revelations that are going to come, and things like that. But yeah, it doesn't take like a pretty, major rocket scientist to figure out who he is. But he, they, he doesn't say who he is, right? Like, but, <laughs> but there's a lot of pathos in those symbols too. The symbols yeah. oftentimes can, you know. They, they tell you how to feel, but they also make you feel. Yeah. <laughs> they induce feeling. The best the best ones do, too. So, okay. Well, Karen, any final thoughts? Anything else you need, you know, want to add? You're the, you're the expert here. So, you know, tell, tell us, tell us what to think, Karen. <laughs> no, I mean, I think we did a good, I think we did a good job today. We had to get through the custom house and now it'll be all these fun chapters. Yeah. <laughs> so can't wait. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This is this is really fun to to do this to make this an annual tradition. Mm-hmm. We will uh, continue to to take your questions. If you know, we'll do the Q and A episode at the end. But if you do have more questions, you can post those uh, on Substack under the episode, and you know, in the comment section or on the Facebook page. Heidi, we're uh, we're working our way through Paralandra right now over on the the bonus episodes, and that's I, right. A couple episodes left, right? Yeah, that's right. We are we are just at the violence. And then it gets so good. I just, I just love this book so much. And I hope you are well on your way in Brothers Karamazov, David. Me? me? Yeah. Are you? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> we have our retreat coming up at the end of June. And uh, I've got my book. I have my book. It's right here. Here's my that copy. Look, that looks and, uh, pretty. I've never seen that, uh, that cover before. Yeah. I'll finish it. Yeah, you will definitely by the retreat in six weeks. Um, no, David we're we're very love excited about that Russian literature as much as Tim and I do. I just have complicated feelings about yeah. hearts of like. Well, never mind. Not not <laughs> for this. Not for this episode. We have a whole retreat for me to to complain about the uh, way that they wrote to get paid by the word. Uh, okay, so um, anyway. <laughs> Karen, thank you so much. Very excited to continue this conversation. And we'll be back next week with a conversation about chapters four through eight. So for Heidi White and for Karen Swallow Pryor, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. 